against 5719. Track 45 left. Stop. Enhance 15 to 23. Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. This is episode 14 of our podcast, and today we're going to be deviating a little bit while still staying in for what a lot of people consider to be in-universe, or in this case, off-world. And today, uh, I'm Pete, and this is... Jamie. We're going to be talking about Blade Runner. Um, So where do you want to start with this, Jamie? Oh my god, there's so much to... There's so much to talk about at Blade Runner. Uh... I mean, as you very well know, and of course you just saw the film again, Blade Runner is such a seminal film. It's, uh, it's, it's, it changed a generation. It, it changed how fi- science fiction films were made. Most science fiction films since Blade Runner has released uh, are a homage to Blade Runner in some ways. Um, so, wow. Um, I mean, we could just kind of talk about the setup. And, I mean, it's a film noir. Uh, it works as a film noir. And there's many different iterations of Blade Runner. There's the original director's cut, which, uh, well, there's the original. Um, the theatrical, theatrical cut, yeah. Yeah, which had the narration, um, which I, I I watched for years and I enjoyed. But then when the director's cut came out without the narration, I loved it even more. And so mm-hmm. have you seen, have you seen the theatrical or the, uh, yeah, the theatrical cut? I have seen the theatrical cut and the final cut. I have not seen the international theatrical cut, the director's cut, or the work print. I know they're all on the 30th anniversary Blu-ray. I just watched it yeah. the other day. Uh, the final cut's my favorite. Um, I like it without the narration because I, I remember reading about how Harrison was basically like, he was like, fuck this. Like, he didn't want to do it because <clears throat> he felt like they were going way too much down a film noir route with it. Um because that's one of the staples uh, in film noir is the unreliable narrator. You yeah. know, like uh, Sunset yeah. Boulevard, that just like, you know, ices the cake, essentially. But I'm glad that it's great that you know about Sunset Boulevard, because that was my next. Uh, I was going to kind of talk about Sunset Boulevard, but. Oh, it's classic. Blade Runner, yeah, it was. And Blade Runner really set up what is now future noir. Um, and I think. Uh, in some ways, a sister film to Blade Runner, in a very odd way, is Drive. Yes, uh, Dri- yes. Drive has that future noir feel. It has a bit of a sci-fi feel, but it's certainly a film noir. It's driven by the score. Um, but anyways, I, I, I don't want to talk about Drive right now, but uh, it's, it's really, the film has really uh, influenced so much. You can see a lot of um, Blade Runner and even Terminator, the original. Yep. And I like that. Just the uh, the neon vibe, essentially. Because it's just such a dark film. Like, I mean, uh, Blade Runner and The Terminator, like, if you, if you think about thematically a lot of the same things, they're very similar stories. You know, you have, it's uh, well, in a role reversal, um, you know, in Blade Runner, you have a man who's killing robots. And in The Terminator, you have a robot that's killing people. 
because that's what his programming is. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot of people that'll be like, oh, well, you know, Deckard's a replicant. No, he's not. This and that. I mean, what I say, I mean, I change my mind on it every now and again. It's like Alien 3. You know, oh, I like it. Yeah, no, I don't. But <laughs> um, it it really doesn't matter to me. I mean, it's still the same story. But um, before we get off too much on that, um, there it, it's just influenced so many films. Um, I, I finally got around to watching Moon the other day, which is just a phenomenal oh. film. It is so good. Yes, yes, yes. I loved it. Um, you which can, finds it's a lot of its 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 influences from Alien primarily, and then yeah, it's Moon is amazing. I really really liked Moon, um, and Gertie in a lot of ways could be seen like Gaff, you know, because near the end of Moon, um, Gertie says that he can wipe his memory when the Eliza team comes, and so they will never know that the clone of Sam is the one that goes back. And it kind of yeah. shows how, at the end of Blade Runner, Gaff puts down the unicorn um, in front of Deckard's apartment. Like, yeah, it's okay. You can trust me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I... My gosh, like... What's interesting about Blade Runner, like, if I can speak wax philosophical a little bit, is it has this setup for, of course, Los Angeles. It's future Los Angeles. Uh, of course, a future that we're very close to, 2019. Um, it's very dystopian, but it's a very... It's almost like the first dystopian film, a dystopian future, where most residents of Earth have gone off-world. Um... And what has remained are kind of a lot of blue collar or very, very poor, poor people um, who kind of make up an underworld. Yeah, um, huge cities. I, I, yeah. Yeah. A little bit of an aside. What I think is funny is in Star Wars, uh, the prequel films, The Attack of the Clones, um, when they're chasing, when Anakin and, and Obi-Wan are chasing the bounty hunter and they go. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Down below. And that yeah, is totally Blade Runner. It is absolutely Blade Runner, which is interesting, which is fine, but it's funny when uh, uh, when Star Wars, which had an aesthetic that it announced before Blade Runner, then borrows from Blade Runner. It's, it's interesting, um, because Coruscant, the underworld of Coruscant, in so many ways, is evident of Blade Runner. I mean, the neon signs, you have all these funky-looking people walking around, all these shady yeah. bars... Uh, Taffy Lewis is here if you want to come down and have a drink. <laughs> you know, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Finding finding yeah. the worm and the tequila, that, that, that kind of thing. It's it's yeah. interesting to consider how a film that wasn't even really a commercial success could, over time, influence so many films. I mean, it's it's... It tops so many best of lists. It's not even funny. Oh yeah, like next to it's Alien. It's probably one of yeah. I mean, it's one of the greatest science fiction films ever made. That doesn't take place in space. That takes place in a future in a future Earth. And it just it, it asks some really 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 um, fundamental philosophical questions like who are we um, as people? What are we responsible for? Um, and you know, Rachel's whole like battle with herself like she has these memories of of living but they aren't real memories and so she's kind of she's this android that's falling apart you know because she doesn't know who she is um 
Uh, and it, it really, and then it paints this, these these small stories, really. So you have these stories going on in this huge, huge city, which reminds me, and of course Blade Runner was made in the 80s, so it certainly has that 80s vibe, but it reminds me of growing up in Chicago as a child mm. and kind of hearing like smooth jazz music with my dad in the car and just thinking about the city and that scene where um, Deckard is standing out on his... Uh, his balcony and he's oh yes that's so powerful oh it is and it's just that longing and that that he's alone but it's comforting at the same time and just kind of begging questions out into the ether and then then you have these other kind of side stories of essentially these androids you know i mean most of the film is about androids and where do they belong and the relationship between androids and their need for life um that they don't want to die that they want to go on living because they enjoy it um it's some pretty heavy shit. And and it's even more evidenced as you would say heavy shit when uh, Deckard kills Zora. Like when he's like, move, get out of the way. Yes. That scene right yes. there just really gives me goosebumps. Because yeah. you can see him firing, but after the first two shots, you just notice that he just loses all color as soon as she slowly tumbles through the, gra- the glass. And yeah. you can really see him start to question not only himself, but his sanity and his job like he's questioning if what he's even doing is is right and and the question that rachel asked during the void conf you know have you ever retired a human by mistake no but in your line of work that is a risk that sort of thing it's just like it's it's the little the little nuances that you know hampton fancher and david peoples tucked in and yeah just that that kind sadness. of thing. It just really it really raises so many questions. It does, and you know, there's a sadness to like when Zora is killed and she falls through the glass, like you said, and that slow motion, and then you see her lying, and there's a sadness to that, and people are kind of standing around looking, and the sadness to me is because human life or 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 artificial life, a life is past, and it's it, it's really sad. I mean, it, it's as sad as. You know, um, Ray's ordeal in the end and his kind of talking about things he's seen um, and things that have inspired him. And he's so craving life. He's craving life so much that he's killing to get more life, which is an irony. Um, But uh, yeah, just this idea of what life is and what are we responsible for as humans when we create these things uh, who then take on lives of their own. I mean, uh, again, more it asks so many questions but it doesn't ask questions in a kind of dumb prometheus kind of way uh well it it certainly does it it certainly does set up like uh like an archetype for future films in that regard like a lot of the questions that get asked in blade runner seem to get brought up again in say you know prometheus or even going into the future alien five or yeah whatever that kind of thing and i like that i do too and blade runner asks the questions so intelligently much like alien asks questions and kind of puts us in situation situations very intelligently where it's not kind of making us feel obvious it's very like no well uh i mean and i i i it makes me think of like uh, battlestar galactica uh the the latest version or the, the not the latest version but the the series that was on um until about 2000, 
five or six, I can't really remember, um, which was an incredible, incredible series that ultimately dealt with man's relationship with their creation, which were essentially robots in the shape of man that they created, who then kind of surpassed man, and they were kind of coming home saying, you owe us answers, um, which was much like Roy and uh, Pris, um, and you know the rest were doing like, you owe us answers and we want to live. Um, and it, 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 it goes into, there's this idea that I think that is a very real thing, like with, with us where we get new technology and then we become bored of it and we throw it away. Right. Um, we have, we have so and, much disposability in, in our society and it's a shame, you know, I mean, yeah. we can, <laughs> we can send people to the moon, you know, you can, you can call somebody who's thousands of miles away, you know, much like we're doing right now, but yeah. It, it at the end of the day, so many people just take it for granted, and it just kind of it, it's upsetting even to consider that, you know, in the face of such um, frightening technology, that people would just brush it off like it's nothing. And Blade Runner really shows what happens when that gets to a peak. You know, yes. you have the spinners; yeah. you can go wherever you want. There's video calling, that sort of thing. I mean, that was unheard of in the '80s. That was like, yeah. you know, that was like dreams for people back then. But it it was kind of a really, like, a it seems like a warning to the future. Like, Ridley Scott's saying, hey, you know, this technology's cool, but we need to we need to keep our shit together. Yeah. It's almost like a, a story on, almost like very Shakespearean in terms of the loss of humanity and the effects of that loss of humanity. What have we become? What have we become that we're throwing technology away like it's garbage when that technology then has its own life and its own desires and its own feelings that it's learned on its own, but we're throwing it away. Like even the, the premise of Blade Runner, you know, obviously, as you know, I'm sure there might be some people listening now who haven't seen Blade Runner, but the premise of Blade Runner is um, Rick Deckard is called a Blade Runner and a Blade Runner was a special squad of policemen who were assigned to retire, quote unquote, which essentially means kill or shut down um, uh, replicants. And replicants were illegal on um, Earth. And so Rick Deckard uh, in a future Los Angeles, like 2019, is, uh, is kind of forced into retiring four more replicants. Um, and then a fifth he finds out about. Um, but, you know, even the term, the term retiring, it's a very nice term. They're killing them. They're killing these people. Well, it kind of um, shows how, uh, you know, the government and media like to desensitize things, you know, even today. Much less like they were doing back in the 80s with things. Um, you yes. know, you just, you see so much of certain things and it just, it doesn't have any power anymore. You know, you turn on the TV today. I mean, I don't really watch TV, but I'm sure if I turned on the news, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, local boy shot in the head, you know, something like that. I don't, I don't want to get all political with it, obviously, but, um, yeah, they, they kind of tame things down a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. so retiring yeah. is, it seems like is the LAPD, it's their way of just, you know, keeping everybody calm about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And in, in, in a very kind of sick way, I mean, uh, I yeah it's 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 very very interesting again um there's the <coughs> pardon me the scene of when Deckard comes is talking well I think actually Rachel goes to Deckard's house and she brings a photo of her mother 
and uh, oh, yes. he starts talking to her. he starts talking to her about m- memories he shouldn't know, but he does know um, because they're not hers. And she's dumbfounded. I mean, she's a living, breathing person in all regards. Um, I mean, she you know obviously she has some her inner workings are are, are metal and are, you know the very core of her. There there's a machine in her, despite her organic nature. Um, but um, she's talking about these things, and then he starts kind of telling her story to herself, and she doesn't know how to. She doesn't know uh, um, what to think about it. And again, it just kind of plays into that uh, technology has brought us so far uh, that uh, yeah, we take things for granted. But then, larger on a larger scale, you think about like Ty- uh, Tyrell. Uh, or the the company uh, isn't this the Ty- the Tyrell company? Yes, yeah, the Tyrell who, who Corporation. The Tyrell Corporation, yes, who are responsible for manufacturing these things. Um, and it, again, it kind of alludes to the idea that corporations are running the world, which is very true now. You know, it's it, it's a really it's an interesting how kind of life parallels that on some levels. Um, of course, there's not you know, a corporation out there making robots for, for pleasure. I mean, I'm sure that will happen eventually, but, uh, just kind of the need, like even the police are serving the needs of the corporation. Everybody's kind of loyal to the corporation. That's where everyone works. That's where, um, what's his name? Uh, JF Sebastian works is the, the corporation, the Tyrell corporation, everything kind of, is the focal point there. So they kind of, they're responsible for livelihood. They're responsible for pay. They're responsible for industry. Um, it's just a fascinating thing to, to kind of take all in. I definitely agree. And then you have uh, Holden, who is another Blade Runner, who is yes. the, uh, that's the opening scene. Um, now I haven't read too much into the uh, sequel novels because um, K.W. Jeter who has written a bunch of science fiction novels. Um, he was a good friend of Philip K. Dick's, and he got permission from Dick's estate to uh, write a few official sequels to Blade Runner. And I know I've, I've probably got about like 10 or 20 pages into Blade Runner 2, uh, the book, and I just I kind of put it aside, not out of disinterest or anything, but um, it establishes that um, Deckard and Rachel leave and he has some sort of preservation device to keep her around, you know, cause she has, she has a little longer lifespan than the average replicant. Um, and then Holden is, I think he was in the hospital or something. And then Gaff got killed, something like that. But, um, it's, it's just interesting because everybody in a sense does work for the Tyrell corporation, you know, yeah, they're, yeah. they're hunt. The LAPD is hunting down, you know, <laughs> their property essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which, I mean, again, which is it's, interesting it's, it's because you know, it's it's more human than human is their motto, but their creations are valued as less than human to the point where, you know, oh, we're gonna kill you now. Yeah. Even the idea when uh, in the beginning where, uh, the uh, I can't remember uh, Deckard's uh, kind of. The the sheriff or the Bryant, his boss, he reports to. What's his name? Bryant. Bryant. Okay, he's talking. They're they're looking at images of the replicants that have escaped, and they they're you know they're showing pictures, and they go, and then you see a picture of Pris. He goes, "It's a basic pleasure model," and that's all she is. 
That's all she, you know, she has enough. There's nothing more about her. I mean, it is, it, it's, it's so fascinating because the, he just blows her off as not real. They're, they're, they're replicants. They're not real things. Um, especially in an age, I mean, I find it ironic, especially the way that women are treated, uh, the way that way women have been treated uh, synonymously, or I shouldn't say synonymously, but historically throughout the history of the world. Um, then you kind of have, you know, if you look at the women in the, except for Rachel, who kept her clothes on in the home film, um, these replicants, these kind of official replicants, Zora and Pris, were kind of these kind of throwaway women made for, you know, made voluptuously, made to pleasure men, and then to be thrown away. I, um, I think uh, Zora was a combat model. Um, was she a combat I'm model? I'm fairly certain that she was a combat model. Interesting. Because um, Pris was the basic pleasure model, and then I believe Zora's dossier said that she was an elite part of an elite combat squad. Interesting. Which was ironic. Going to check out LG426 before she went back to Earth. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, and then uh, a little bit of trivia here. Um, when they were writing Prometheus, uh, and it's in the um, it's in the expanded material for on the Prometheus 3D Blu-ray, which I have. Um, there was text written about William Tyrell and uh, Peter Peter Wayland and how they were kind of friends, and they both kind of went off to do their own thing. So it's essentially tying both worlds together, which Ridley Scott has said himself. I mean, I don't want to get too far into the you know uh, what do you call it the uh, Blade Runner being attached to the alien to the alien series, but it's it's an interesting tidbit. And again, another interesting tidbit when in Prometheus when um, the crew just wakes up and they go and they're all sitting together and uh, they see a projection of Peter Wayland, who's very, very old. The room that he's in that's projecting looks so much like the room that uh, Eldon Tyrell and Deckard and Rachel are in in Blade Runner. There's a lot of similarities there. The feel, the ambience, the, the, the kind of cathedral-like quality. It's pretty amazing. <coughs> oh, that's when he... Uh administers the void conf on her and it takes over a hundred yes. questions yeah that was interesting yeah. um yeah probably a nice nod to the blade runner universe um for me there's there's three films that are all linked together in one way or another and that would be alien and blade runner which is the most obvious one and then alien and outland uh, i don't know if you've seen outland yet i haven't i really want to i'm going to go see it eventually it's 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 with Sean Connery, and he plays a marshal on this uh, mining station on one of Jupiter's moons called Io. And uh, basically, okay. there's it's like high noon in space. You know, there's like a drug smuggling ring, and uh, um, Marshall. Uh, I wanted to say Marshall waits, but that's from Alien Isolation. Um, the marshal just gets to the bottom of it, and. You know, it's it's typical Sean Connery being a badass, but the aesthetic and everything is just so similar to Alien. And it was actually directed um, by Peter Hyams, I think, who was the director of 2010, which was, I, I mean, I hear it's very good. I have not seen it, but everybody knows the aesthetic of 2001. Yeah, 2010's amazing. you got to watch it. Oh, yeah. It might be on Netflix streaming. I'm not sure if you have that, but... I think it's on Netflix streaming. I will have to check that out. Um, but yeah, for me, it's Outland, Alien, and Blade Runner. They're all connected because they share very similar traits with each other. 
and a lot of the questions that each of the films ask are similar in many ways. I like the ambiguity of the space jockey, and I like films that have depth but don't provide answers to said depth. Yes, absolutely. Alien really succeeds at that. I mean, they went so out of their way in the original Alien to make a living, breathing world for these people that were basically cooped up in a garbage truck in space. And it's it's just, they did so much for a film that wasn't even supposed to be successful. You know, 20th yeah. Century Fox just grabbed the first script on its desk, essentially. Um, yeah. But, but I love that. You know, and Outland's the same way. Like, it's just got so much depth to the visual aesthetic to the characters it's a living breathing world and i love that yeah uh and you know you hit on a couple of interesting points well one of them is that you feel like there's three films that connect for you um but what's interesting about blade runner is and of course there is a sequel announced or a follow-up film i hate the term sequel um there's a follow-up film that has been announced it was announced about a year or so ago um will star uh, Harrison Ford and uh, who's looking mighty good by the way I saw him at uh, San Diego Comic Con on the, the footage and he looks still got he's it. the oldest yeah he does he's 72 so he's the oldest of the tri- of the like the triumvirate which is Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill he looks the youngest of the three to me oh, just because no he's in such great shape and his hair is cut real short too and styled in an interesting way where he looks like Deckard to me um, so I don't know if production starting soon or whatever. Um, but anyways, what's interesting about uh, another interesting aspect of Blade Runner is how it works on its own. It doesn't need a sequel. It, it, it doesn't. It asks questions. It asks a lot of questions. It asks very personal and heartfelt and serious questions. Um, but it doesn't. They don't like need to be answered in order for the film to finish itself. They're very philosophical kind of human questions like that we kind of ponder ourselves and come up with our own answers. And uh, that's one of the beauties of Blade Runner is that it's so self-contained. Um, even, uh, even, even alien is like that. Like just, there's so yes. many questions that don't, don't really get answered. I mean, there's, there's been novels and comics and directors have you know, been on the book saying, Oh, this is how it's supposed to be. But you know, just like alien and Blade Runner and, many other films that escape me at the moment they just they set up a premise that works they are self-contained and they are self-righteous and they work and i yeah. like that you know there it's it's rare for me to watch films that are just great by themselves and then you find out that they have sequels and it's like oh okay um like for me mad max works great as a quadrilogy i suppose now because yeah. It, it just works for me because it asks so many questions in the original one and it's got such a great atmosphere in film and in the film and and I just love it you know district nine's the same way it's yes it's, absolutely it's so self-contained it's yeah. it's uh, got so much substance on its own um, yes and, and I, I really like I, that yeah yeah I do too and uh, you know it, it's interesting to kind of talk about the behind of the scenes for a second or for a bit uh blade runner went through a hell of a lot of problems the production was halted uh 
at one point, um, this is in the uh, Dangerous Days documentary that's on the Blu-ray, um, which is incredible. I, I persuade anyone to watch it. Um, but there was a point where Harrison Ford wasn't speaking to Ridley Scott. Um, there was a point where uh, all the producers, or not all, but a lot of producers and executive producers um, from Fox came down to the production and was like, what the hell is going on here? And they stopped production and they kept giving Ridley Scott a hard time. And there was so much, there was so much. Um, Would that be uh, Warner difficult... Brothers? Uh, uh, Blade Runner is uh, Warner Brothers, I think. Lad Company. Did I say Fox? Yeah, I it's Fox? Uh, Lad oh, Company okay. with. I did not yeah, Sir Run so Run Shaw. Alien, alien films that I say Fox <laughs> just do muscle memory, but yes. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And um as as far as uh the the production went, that sat right between uh Star Wars for Harrison Ford too. And um, It did. It was his it was his film between Empire and Return of the Jedi. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was I was reading a bit about it. I don't know if this has been confirmed or not, but I was reading how uh, Harrison Ford wanted to wear a fedora to kind of capture that yes uh, yes nineteen forties vibe, which ironically enough he got mad at with the narration, but um, he wanted to do that and they wouldn't let him. So that's why he has the signature Deckard haircut in that film with the. That's- that's interesting. Uh, well, I heard some a little bit of a, 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 a variation on that. I, what I had heard was that they wanted him to wear a fedora, but it was too late. And, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark had come out, and they said, "No, he's not. He cannot be um, Indiana Jones." So they, oh, that was it. That was it. Yeah. So they uh, <laughs> discarded that idea. Well, you know, because it, it's it's an iconic it's an iconic image now. Um, but yeah, that is interesting. It's an interesting tidbit. I mean, again. All the casting and, you know, if, again, if people watch Dangerous Days and hear Harrison Ford and everybody kind of talking about their roles and what they went through and how painstaking it was. But also the work that they went through to create the atmosphere. Uh, just, uh, I mean, the real places that they use, the sets that they built. Um, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. It's, it's perfect practical filmmaking at its best. I mean, it was in the height of the 80s. Uh, where practical effects were king. There was no CGI. Um, if computers were used, it was very, very minimally in very, very rudimentary kind of ways. Um, so Blade Runner really just became this... I mean, that opening scene, too, where um, you hear Vangelis' music and then you 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 see the, the fires from the outskirts of Los Angeles and then the scroll of the text and then we're zooming in like we're a spaceship... Um, over to the Tyrell Corporation. Uh, it's one of the most powerful openings I've ever seen. Yeah, and and I think one of the reasons why Blade Runner still to this day ends up being on so many uh, top film lists is because of how believable everything is. I mean, yes. I was I was watching that. I mean, you know, Blu-ray really cleans up a lot of old films, but I was sitting there and I and just watching it on my seventy-inch TV. It just, oh man, that, that, it looks so real. Even the spinners. There's one scene when Deckard's in the car and he calls Pris at Sebastian's. Hey, it's Eddie. I'm an old friend. And that's no way to treat a friend. And then the guy, the uh, cop comes by. What are you doing here? Uh, this is Deckard. Blah, 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 blah. Have a better one. That kind of thing. 
like the spinner coming up and down that just it looks so real it's so fluid yeah, it does yeah and your eyes again the again and, and really practical effects are kind of coming back in a big big way thanks to jj abrams uh and his work on star trek and certainly the force awakens which is big in the news uh right now and uh i again persuade everyone to go and watch the new three and a half minute almost four minute behind the scenes footage of the force awakens it's awesome oh i but, cried <laughs> yeah i did too i mean I, i've seen it a bunch of times and i just like oh my god it's chewy um but really when i when i see blade runner my i my psyche my my kind of subconscious believes what i'm seeing because it, they actually did it it's real um of course there was effects and there was trickery because it's ultimately not a real place it wasn't a real time but the effects were real they were done you know either matte you know of course the matte paintings for the the far off or the the, the wide shots but they you know they got a car they got a car and they hoisted it up and they used uh, uh smoke machines or fog machines or whatever to give that sense of uh lift off and it's real. It works so well. And I mean, again, the biggest difference that you see now, like with CG is you look at shots and they're so perfect. It doesn't seem real, you know, it's just so to, computerized. It, yeah. It, it lacks character even. Yeah. And uh, what's beautiful about uh, like great, great camera direction, great art direction, isn't that it's perfect, but that it's imperfect because that's what the world is. And if you can create something that's imperfect, it then can be perfect, if that makes sense. Um, and Ridley Scott, I mean, he just has the eye. I mean, again, I'll, I'll talk about Prometheus a little bit. It was beautiful. My eyes believed everything I saw, because he did most everything practically, um, except for a few scenes. Um, it was absolutely gorgeous, and he brings it every single time. I mean, if anything that Ridley Scott can do well, it's practical effects. I agree, and and I hope that for sure uh, Blade Runner makes a return to that. Um, I forget what I was watching that had, you know, a fairly decent uh, atmosphere to it as far as uh, set design went. Um, that was the new Total Recall. I saw probably 15 minutes of that on TV before I went to work, you know, a couple weeks back. And I thought, you know, this is probably okay. I mean, I heard the film bombed, but uh, <laughs> I mean... It, yeah, I've seen it. With uh, Colin Farrell? Yeah, yeah. It was beautiful to watch, for sure. They did, uh, I think, was it Len Wiseman who directed it? Yeah, who did, uh, the, he did the Underworld series. I, I thought, actually, I really enjoyed the film uh, for what it was. I thought it was really great to see. It didn't, it, nothing felt like so much like so much CGI that it felt fake. He did a really good job. It felt a lot like Blade Runner in some ways. Yeah, and um, I, it's, it's nice to know that, that, practical effects um, in great films like 2001, Star Wars, Blade Runner, Alien, they still hold up today. I mean, yeah. I've, I'm, I'm definitely, you know, a child of the 90s, so that's, that's my time. But I, I've absorbed so much from the decades previous to when it was, you know, my youth and everything that I just, for a period of time, I was so used to looking for what was fake in movies. Yeah. And I yeah. was just like, oh, you know, that looks really bad, that kind of thing. But when I really started to get into Alien and Blade Runner, probably, you know, a year or so ago, uh, around Comic-Con, uh, probably like a year and a half ago, 
um, when Alien Isolation was making the uh, convention rounds. That's when I really got into it. And, you know, it's just like you watch those films over and over again, but then you watch it like with almost academic eyes. And then you see how really believable everything is. I mean, yeah. Blade Runner, the special effects are phenomenal. Like the geisha girl on the side of the skyscraper. Yes. The yes. Coca-Cola advertisements, you know, that sort of thing. It's just so cool. You know, it's it's real to me. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it's, like, it's almost like the corporate corporate the corporate trademarks have just kind of taken over earth um or or big cities in earth and uh yeah the, the coca-cola the the geisha um and, and it's so iconic it's iconic imagery too um and there's a a group called blade runner reality and i i uh again i um persuade everyone to join the group and it's basically people taking photos of things that remind of scenes in big cities or wherever that remind them of the aesthetic of Blade Runner. But there's a photo in there right now that someone took in China, in Beijing, I think. <coughs> and it's of a building, and on the side of the building is a big a big screen, and on that screen is this Asian woman kind of talking. Very oh, similar yes, to yes, yes, I saw that. Um, that, that, made the, <coughs> that made the uh, Reddit rounds. Um, yeah, it, it's awesome. And again, it's kind of art imitating life or life imitating art. Uh, one of the two. Um, but uh, I, I want to talk about one thing that I think uh, really makes Blade Runner as much as the aesthetics it's the music uh, Vangelis' score which is fucking phenomenal I will say probably one of the best $20 that I have ever spent on iTunes oh, yeah. oh, is yeah. the Blade Runner Trilogy Suite I don't know why it's called the Trilogy Suite but yeah I noticed that too yeah I think it's because it's a compilation of different things that he's put out over the years. Because uh, I don't know if a lot, a lot of our listeners know, but the official soundtrack to Blade Runner, uh, when it first came out, was heavily abridged. And it never really got its full release until, I want to say, 2007 or 2008. Yep. And it's just like, wow, you know, to think you, we had to wait, you know, <laughs> almost 30 years to get the full yeah. soundtrack it's it's got so much substance i love it yeah me too i i have it i i listen to i listen to a lot of music all the time and blade runner soundtrack is one soundtrack i listen to maybe once or twice a week it's just there's something about it and again uh it almost the music of blade runner it it, it kind of it moves me because the story almost feels like I'm a part of it in some way. Like I'm Deckard or I'm Rachel or I'm Zora. Like I can kind of identify with all of these characters um, or even Ray um, or Roy. Sorry, I don't know why I say Ray. Roy. I said Ray earlier too. Sorry, y'all. I mean, Roy. <laughs> Roy Batty. We're only humans. We're not I'm, replicants. I'm exhausted too. I went to the gym after work, so I'm exhausted. Uh, but Roy, Roy's talking about life uh, at the end, which I mentioned earlier. Um, and he's talking about just, he has this passion. He wants to live, which we all do that in that innate, uh, sensibility, um, that we have to just live and to stay alive and to survive. Um, of course it's for Roy, it was a little bit different where he was, he knew he was dying. He could feel his body dying. Like when he, you kept seeing him kind of, uh, he drove that thing into his arm so he could feel it. That's the spirit. Yeah. And he was closing his his hand in and out because he could almost almost like the rigor mortis setting in or something. He knew he, it was time. It was very, getting very close. That's not um, very sportsmanlike. Yeah, 
Or even in the end, too, when um, he says his little spiel, which I won't say because he says it beautifully, and I'll, maybe I'll use that as a clip at the end of this podcast. Um, but you see it, he says, time to die. And he lays his head down, and it's such a gorgeous image, and the dove flies out. Like, it's his spirit, which is interesting because it's almost like, because in the Bible, um, the story of Jesus, when Jesus dies on the cross, uh, he says, into the, into into thine hands I commend my spirit. And he drops his head, and a dove flies out. And Roy Batty almost does the same thing. And he's got the the stigmata on on one of his hands, which is interesting. It's almost like a Christ-like thing, because he saved, he ends up saving uh, Deckard from death, um, and then he gives up his own life to some degree. I mean, his, he was going to die anyways. But it's it's very, like, spiritual, powerful stuff. Whether people believe in Jesus or whatever, it, it plays on kind of mythology, um, and that uh, the quest for life and the quest for meaning of life. I, I think for him, the reason why he saves Deckard is because he realizes how petty everything is. Yes. He's, he, was, he was on a crusade, more, uh, more religious references. He was on a crusade, uh, for lack of better terms. Um, he, was, he was part of the uh, replicants that started the uprising, and they killed people to get off-world and go to back to Earth to confront their creator and request yeah. more life. Because yeah. the failsafe of the replicants was that they only had a four-year um, uh, expiration date. You know, from yeah. their incept date to their expiration, it's only four years. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, Roy's killed so many people. He's, he's done dastardly things to get to Tyrell. And then he ends up killing his creator because his creator couldn't fulfill the creation's desire. Yeah. And, yeah. And then at the end, you know, Deckard realizes that, you know, it's now or never. He's got to get Roy. He's got to live. He has to live. Um, yeah. A big question is asked, too. We don't know what Rachel's incept date is. We don't know how long Rachel has to live. Rachel is very different. Uh, Rachel, I mean, it took, in, in Blade Runner, he, it took him over 100 questions to, to realize that she was a replicant which is something he never does. It's usually within the first, I don't know, 30, 40 questions <coughs> that they establish that who they're talking to either is a replicant or isn't. But it takes him over 100 questions to establish that with Rachel. So there's a lot of open-ended questions about Rachel. Is she still living? Uh, which the new film might answer. However, there's a lot of drama going on with Sean Young. I, I have highly doubt that she's going to be in this, the Blade Runner follow-up. I really doubt it, and, and I hope that she's not. Um... I hope that she is, actually. She looks fantastic, um, and I hope she could pull it together. Um, and I, I hope the, uh, the studio could take a risk with her, because she was one of the best... Um, she's one of the best parts of... To me, she's one of the... She's the heart of, of uh, Blade Runner. She uh, is. Not that she I need is. her to... Uh, not that I need her to... Um, oh, I, I, let me back up a bit. I don't want Blade Runner 2 to, um, I, don't, we, I don't need a Blade Runner 2. Like, I don't need them to retread old ground. I have a lot of questions for Rachel, but the, I'm fine kind of debating those questions with myself. And we've just, we've just got, we've discussed this before. Blade Runner, the Blade Runner follow-up needs to be a self-contained film. It needs to be called something else. And it needs to be probably with a different, uh, score, a different, uh, 
composer than Vangelis to really kind of recapture that magic in a very, very different way. But, uh, but I have questions for Rachel. I mean, if they're bringing back Deckard, I think that it does, Rachel deserves to be brought back too, you know? But uh, so it, it, all, it all has to make sense. There needs to be oh, a reason. Sure. There needs to be a reason why Deckard comes Absolutely. back. They can't bring her back just because I want to see her or fans want to see her. They have to bring her back because she's integral. Um, I mean, and this is a little bit of a segue. Uh, but if you notice in the first Star Wars films, which are, of course, my first loves, um, one of them, uh, from, aside from The Dark Crystal, uh, when Princess Leia in A New Hope, I mean, she's really important in the first film. She's just vital to everything that's happening. They got to get her out. They got to, you know, she's got plans. She, R2, you know, she put the plans in the R2 unit like she knows so much. And then in Empire Strikes Back, you see her. She's, again, she's in the, 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 she's in the film quite a bit, but she's not really doing much. Um, and then by, um, then by Return of the Jedi... She ain't doing shit. Um, she's just kind of a, a, she's really, she's a, a, uh, an ornament, which she literally is for Jabba the Hutt. And then she gets rescued or after she tries to rescue Han. And I'm saying all this because, uh, it's, it was unfortunate kind of what happened with Leia, even though I think the first three films are flawless, um, of Star Wars. It can't happen to, um, it can't, if they brought Rachel back, it would have to be that she she need to do something. She need to be important. She just can't be around being eye candy or or an ornament for Deckard. You know, I agree. And and I think one of the things is because because of the uh, the bracket of year difference between you know Blade Runner and Blade Runner Two, almost you know thirty five years. There, that's a big difference. Um, and if if they were to do something that accounts for the age gap, much like. Uh, Blomkamp's aliens probably going to do. That would have to be interesting. They they'd really have to to sell it, and that's that's where I think Ryan Gosling comes in. And I feel yes. like this is a great time for us to talk about how Drive is is uh, very much related to Blade Runner, oh, and, and how how we think Gosling could fit as the new face of Blade Runner. Yes, he's brooding. He's he's very masculine he's very brooding he's he doesn't say much a lot like decker really doesn't say much he acts more than he speaks i mean of course speaking is acting but he it's it's a lot of like physical work that i mean you're absolutely right i mean i know we've discussed this before but drive is a sister film to blade runner in a different genre um it's very future noir but classic noir it's got a lot of the same colors as blade runner um the soundtrack even yeah the soundtrack, yeah, it's got that '80s kind of soundtrack. Um, although Blade Runner soundtrack, I think, is a far more timeless. Uh, I mean, not more timeless than Drive, but for the for the film, it's a timeless soundtrack for Blade Runner. Oh yeah, but yeah. I I think so much of of what makes Drive successful is just how uh, blunt it is. Like it it makes no sacrifices in terms of storytelling. I mean, you see people's heads getting blown off, their heads getting stomped in, that kind of thing. And and in a way, I feel like that borrows from the pages of Blade Runner, essentially, because in Blade Runner, a lot of the killing that gets done is merciless. Uh, there's no remorse. It's simply because he was told to. Yeah. Um, when he kills Pris, that is just... He's, he's just doing it, you know? He's just shooting her. That's it. Yeah, well, he's, it's also for Pris. It's more of a, uh, 
like survival. Chris will kill him if he doesn't kill her. Oh yeah, exactly. And and in Drive, it's it mirrors that because people are after the driver, and he knows that if he doesn't use his skills, then he's a goner. And I know that the ending is ambiguous, much like um, Blade Runner. And you just compare the endings of the two. And Drive, he uh, kills the guy who set him up, but he gets hurt. And you just see him driving off into the sunset. And in Blade Runner, uh, it depends, depends on which cut you watch, but in the final cut, um, him and Rachel, they leave. And you just see them driving off into the sunset. Yep. And 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 I like how Drive borrows a lot from the 1980s, and especially Blade Runner. Um, you know, like you were saying, the archetype of the character that doesn't say much, but they 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 have something witty to say, like uh, "Oh, my hands are dirty," or you know, things like that. Yeah. That that's what really sells Gosling to me. You know. And uh, as, as much as I did not like the hour that I watched of Only God Forgives, that is so, so Blade Runner. It's not even funny. Yeah, I need Just, to see that. Oh, I, I, well, I need to find one that's subtitled because I was not sitting through uh, <laughs> like two and a half hours of Chinese with Ryan Gosling. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, really, that's the, the big news for Blade Runner is the, the the follow-up film, which has been announced, I think, isn't, let's see, the guy who, what's the name of the director of Drive? Uh, Nicholas Winding, and then it's like a four-letter word that I don't want to butcher, like, okay, R-E-F-N, Rafen, something like that? Is he the same guy who directed Prisoners? Because whoever the guy is who directed the film Prisoners with, uh, uh, what's his name, Gyllenhaal, Jake Gyllenhaal, is directing the Blade Runner follow-up. Um, of course, the Blade Runner follow-up film is being heavily produced by Ridley Scott. Uh, yes, someone's directing it, but Ridley Scott's producing it. Uh, it's it's a Ridley Scott show for sure. Um, and I, I we discussed this before, but because this is our Blade Runner episode, I think it was a very wise decision on Ridley Scott's part to kind of uh, give up the reins to someone else. Uh, I, I mean, I it's, think... it's kind of like Star Wars, though. I mean, J.J. Abrams is the boss man here. But in a sense, no matter how little George Lucas is attached to the production, you can tell that you, you know that J.J. Abrams is definitely spending some quality time with George saying, hey, you know, how, how can we do this right? Yes, yes. And, and I think that if Blade Runner 2 is to be successful, even if Ridley Scott is the executive producer, they have so much potential to make an awesome film like okay, how do we do this in a way that's not copying the original, yes. isn't a reboot, that kind of thing, yeah. but in its own way, badass. Yeah. And, you know, uh, that's those same questions, again, uh, because we're talking about the Blade Runner sequel, those same questions uh, need to be asked for the Alien follow-up, the Aliens follow-up by Blumkamp. How do they make a film that doesn't copy Aliens? That's its own thing. That uh, gives new life to... Um, a very familiar story. I mean, they're they're very. That's the key to these successful films. These successful kind of reboots, as you call them, is you, they've got to be something different yet reminiscent, yet not too pandering, yet a little bit pandering. It's a tough, tough, tough thing. And we, you and I, said this before. The Blade Runner follow up is going to be the most difficult film to accomplish. 
and it could have the best payoff ever. And I think having Hampton Fancher write the script to me is key. Uh, that's who you want telling these stories. You want the man who told the story in the beginning. Um, of course, taking uh, all of you know, coming from a story from Philip K. Dick, um, and hopefully they go back to Dick's work and mine other things and see what they didn't use, um, and they kind of let that flourish in the Blade Runner film. I, I'm 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 fascinated to what they're going to call it. Like, if it's going to be called Blade Runner, I hope they don't call it like Blade Runner um, Rebirth. Something. I hope I hope they get rid of the Blade Runner name completely and call it something else. Um, I really, really do. I don't. I, I, it doesn't need the name Blade Runner. Um, uh, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see. It, it should be fairly interesting. I, I'm I'm really excited because I, I know that it has so much potential to, uh, like we were discussing with Alien Five, it has so much potential to succeed. But at the same time, this could be like a really fucking atrocious film. Like it could be worse than AVP. Yeah, you know? it really, 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 really could be. Because you have you have so much talent coming on board, you have something that the fans want, and you just have the expectations to meet not only your own expectations as an artist to express yourself, but also what the fans want to see, you know. And and my hats off to the director of Blade Runner two, and especially Neil Blomkamp, for wanting to do this, you know, to get this out there, not only for the fans but for themselves as artists and and i'm excited i i want to see i want to see the blade runner sequel now i want to see alien yeah. 5 now i want to see star wars 7 now you know that kind of thing and and uh i'm gonna lift a quote from my piano teacher from middle school he was saying that a good performance is the kind that leaves the audience begging for more and yep. you know alien does that blade runner does that every time i watch star wars you know it's these universes are just so rich with substance and there's people in them that are believable the locations really draw you in and i think what sells it is just the aesthetic for all of them and it it, it just it blows me away every single time that i could watch a film that's been out for almost 40 years and want more yeah. and the studios are smart to give the audience that successful or unsuccessful either way it's nice to see the uh the big names coming around again and saying oh you know we haven't done a blade runner movie in a while we should do that you know and it's exciting yeah and really them taking their time to do it much like disney has and lucasfilm have taken their their time to um to craft and hone star wars episode seven you know getting Lawrence kasdan who wrote uh, Empire Strikes Back, you know, one of the best science fiction films ever made um, and best sequels ever made. Oh, uh, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, and have him help write The Force Awakens and then he's writing uh, uh, the... What, he's writing a Han Solo uh, film, too, for, like, the, the one-off films. Oh, but, yeah, The Origin. The Origin yeah, story. Origin nice, film. nice. Absolutely. Um, so it's nice to see the studios doing that, you know. Uh, it's interesting to see, you know, I would like... there's There are a lot of uh, a lot of kind of Blade Runner babies, or a lot of films that are inspired by Blade Runner, or novels, or whatever. I mean, I, I, I not to plug myself, but I'm plugging myself for a second. I wrote a story called, um, or a short story called, Notes from a Bionic Womb, and uh, it's it's inspired by Blade Runner for sure, but it goes off in a completely different direction. Um, 
but it's about a uh, an android who is awoken, um, even though her her model is decommissioned after some. Fa- she's basically a womb to carry human children because uh, the ability for humans to carry their own children has kind of stopped. Um, so there were, she was one of two models that were awoken, and she's living in San Francisco and in kind of an abandoned San Francisco. Um, and you know, much of my, uh, a lot of my, a lot of who Rachel was doesn't go into the character that I wrote, but it's inspired by Rachel. Like this idea that you're kind of questioning, well, who am I? Who am I without memories? How do I make memories? What is real? Um, and, uh, is life real to me? Like, do I have a soul if I'm, uh, an Android? Uh, does God love me? Uh, is there a God? You know, really philosophical, heavy, heavy questions. Again, my film, my, my short story was inspired by, really by Blade Runner, but by a bunch of different things, but just kind of these questions that I've had since I've seen Blade Runner that I wanted to kind of answer in my own way in another story that's completely unrelated, yet deals with similar things like androids, like, uh, yeah, or uh, artificial life. Um, so I think Blade Runner, even by itself, is so triumphant in the questions that it has us ask, our, ask ourselves uh, after we've seen the film. And then, I mean, as we replay it in our head and replay it in our head and we're like, oh, this is interesting. I wonder what, you know, you think about the certain part of the film that this happened or that happened or J.F. Sebastian and his kind of journey um, and where he is and how he has that. I mean, there's just so much to process. And that's a that's the sign of a film that's successful. It makes, that- you, uh, makes you want to create something that, is inspired by that and i and i like that that uh even even across media like you know um blade runner just when i when i take photographs in the city now i i uh i'm totally deckard mode about it too oh really yeah like i just think man how can i make this stand out how can i how can i bring out the colors and tell a story with this much like um you know, they really captured with uh, the dystopian L.A. and Blade Runner. Yeah. And I like that because it shows that, you know, inspiration doesn't doesn't always have to come from one specific thing and then go into another thing in that same media. And I like that. Blade Runner is, is probably my favorite film. I mean, that rotates with Alien, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. It's it, up in my top five for sure. I mean, absolutely. I've, yeah, yeah. It just of a film that's just inspired me since a child, since I was a child, and continues to live in my, in my, in my uh, conscious and subconscious that I replay and replay and think about and think about, think about the character of Deckard and kind of his life in L.A. at that time and how lonely he must have felt, um, and how lost he was, and how kind of he was still kind of serving the man, working for the man. He wasn't his own boss. Um, he wanted to kind of be off on his own, but he couldn't be, you know? Um, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's a film timeless. I, yeah. It's timeless. Absolutely. Great word. And, and I, and I think that, uh, that, that really is the best way to describe Blade Runner is timeless. And, and I'd say that's a, that's a great way to end it tonight. I would agree. Uh, before we do, before we completely end, I want to kind of jump over to another topic that I've been thinking about. I didn't talk to you about, but I was thinking, I see in the Wayland Utani Bulletin and all the on all, all most of the other alien uh, news groups or, or news groups the uh, I'm dating myself with that uh, the the Facebook groups or pages 
a lot of people like post photos of photos or images of the predator and blah, 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 blah. I don't know how you feel to me, for me, there is only the alien films. I don't like the AVP films. I mean, I watch them. I own them uh, just so I can see the alien, just to see how inspired by the alien films the directors were. But <coughs> the Predator and Alien world, to me, do not mesh. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not interested in talking about it. Uh, I think it was a big misstep for Fox to make two films. I mean, the first one was certainly a masterpiece com compared to Requiem, for sure. But that's still not saying much. Um, I, they didn't need to cross these species that didn't, who can kind of hold their own. Um, and it was just something I was thinking about that I thought, hey, I'll, well, I'll just get it out there. And it's not that I'm like, oh, don't post anything on our page about Predator. But you're not going to really hear it about, you're not going to hear me probably or Pete talk about Predator. This is an alien saga podcast. That's what our love is. That's what we talk about. And we're not going to discuss it. Or, not that we're, I don't want to say it like that, like we're not going to discuss it. Boom. You know. bah, bah, bah. Let's lay down the law. I'm yeah, just going to go I on just... the book and say that that uh, I, I like the first two Predator films. I enjoyed Predators. Um, and to be honest, I really enjoyed the uh, AVP novels and comics from the 90s. I really like them. Um, but like you said, it was a real big misstep to make Alien versus Predator and a sequel. And, and some things work in comics. Some things work in comic book form that don't work in film form. And uh, I know a lot of people love it and for them, they're like, oh, no, monsters together, ah, and Marines too, kick ass, America. Uh, <laughs> that is not me. I'm a purist. Uh, I fell in love with Alien and then Aliens, uh, I, and, and it's, it, is un, it should be unadulterated. There is no AVP in my book. Um, I'm at, at best, I, I feel like the films are just retcons. And, yeah, uh, and they're nice little dalliances, you know, if you're bored, watch an AVP film, you know, just to kind of see what happened. I mean, I, I will say this about a, a, uh, Predator, uh, the AVP Requiem film, they got the alien right, like, they got the look of the alien really, gr like, it looks really good, the way that the lips move when it's opening up its jaw, it reminds me of aliens. Uh, they really got it right, um, which is kind of fun to see. But it's not, I just felt like... It was worth mentioning that we're not AVP Galaxy. We are the Alien Saga podcast. That's what we're here to talk about. We're not here to talk about Predator. And with that, I would like to say uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And yes. especially a big shout-out to uh, Alien Identity. Uh, we recently interviewed them. I'm sure if you're listening to this, uh, you have already seen the news or uh, heard our interview with them. Um, but but we, we talked to Adam and L Sonnet, and they were very kind. And uh, their their page, I think, has over 2,000 likes now. And wow. they gave us a share. So um, once again, not to, not to plug or anything, but if you would be kind enough to uh, share our page or our podcast with your friends and family, it's very much appreciated. Because the more people we have coming on board, the better it's going to be for everybody. Absolutely. And we got our own things coming up, too. Like, I actually was able to kind of pin down a, uh, a little bit of a logo for us uh, that I'm going to show you, and then we'll, we'll publish it or po we'll post it later. Just kind of our, our own identity. Excuse the pun. Uh, but, yeah, and then we're going to maybe do other things, like some video. Maybe not video of us, but, like, I have this great idea for a video talking about uh, the next Alien film and called Dear Mr. Blomkamp. Um, and how he can get the next Alien film right. Maybe he probably won't watch it or listen to us, but still, I think it's important, and I think it'll be fun. So, yeah. 
So yes, uh, great big thanks goes out to everybody as we creep up to 600 likes. We started in February. There were only about 20 or 30 when I was on board. So yeah. it's really exponential. And I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart to know that every day I can you know, check our page and see there's people commenting and people liking. There's people that like what we do, and that's important to us. Um, so... If you have any questions or concerns or you just want to chime in, you know, our comment section and especially our inbox is always open. So thanks again, everybody. Yes, thank you. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire on the shore of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the darkness. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears.